you have opted to listen to a podcast about finance and budgeting. I think that makes you a pretty special kind of leader. And not a geeky one, mind you. A smart one. Because I'm thinking you know that budgeting is not something that's done over there by the numbers people and then approved unanimously by a board who asks not a single question. My best friend Kim took a class when she was in her 20s. It was called Overcoming Math Anxiety. She's a smart, strategic, great manager, but practically would go into a cold sweat when it was time to calculate the tip at a restaurant. The class worked, and I swear I only helped her a little bit. Today, she's a successful head of an independent school, and I know that that class has held her in good stead. She now knows what I know, and certainly what my guest today knows. Numbers help you answer questions, set priorities. They are or should be integrally linked to your organization's goals for the years. Numbers tell you very important things. You just need to listen. I've heard these lines, oh no, not budget season, or okay, let's get this budget approved and just put it to bed. Today, my guest whose firm serves only nonprofits will not be using either of these phrases. She will introduce you to the centrality of budgeting and planning, goal setting, and strategy. We'll talk a little vocabulary, what a great budget process should look like, and the role the board should be playing in all of this. You know that phrase far too often used to describe strategic plans? This should be a living and breathing document rather than something that sits on a shelf collecting dust? Well, seems to me it's time to breathe some real life into the process of nonprofit budgeting. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, author, blogger, and founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab gets it. She is here to help. Hilda Polanco is the founder and CEO of FMA. Fiscal Management Associates. Her firm is known nationwide as the go-to organization for financial consulting, training, and for the exploration of financial outsourcing. They have offices in New York, Chicago, Oakland, and Los Angeles. One of my favorite things about FMA is its mission statement. FMA exists to build a community of individuals with the confidence and skills to lead organizations that change the world. But I'm not the only person who noticed that the word finance appears nowhere in that mission statement. Yep, I'll ask. Don't worry. A nationally recognized and sought-after leader in the field, Hilda serves the sector in many ways. She was a founding member of the Selection Committee, the New York Nonprofit Excellent Awards, established by the New York Times and the Nonprofit Coordinating Committee. Hilda's profile extends well beyond her leadership at FMA. She served on the New York City Human, Re human Services Council's Special Commission to study the closure of high-profile human services organizations. She also serves as the chair of the board of directors for the Better Business Bureau Foundation, as well as on the board for Acelero Learning, an organization that works with local communities to support high-quality Head Start programs. Additionally, she serves on the National Advisory Board of the Harvard Journal of Hispanic Policy and is the treasurer of the National Network of Consultants to Grantmakers. When I realized that I have nearly 75 podcast episodes and have not touched on the topic of budgeting, I didn't think twice. I called Hilda. Lucky for all of us, she said yes. Welcome, Hilda, and thank you, to, um, thank you to you and your team for creating a stronger foundation for organizations all across the nonprofit sector. Thank you, Joan, for having me with you. I look forward to spending this time together. So, so oftentimes, organizations see budgets as onerous, nuisances, something to get out of the way. Then there are those who find it deflating, 
particularly program people who find themselves wildly constrained. There's always so much work to do when there are insufficient resources. Can you help listeners change the mindset about the budget process? That's one of my favorite things to do. I see the budget process as the beginning of it all. It's the planning phase for the organization. It's where leaders get to determine what priorities are and how those priorities will be supported. So I encourage all of uh, the, the listeners to think about the budgeting process as an opportunity of expressing the organization's values. What will we prioritize? How will the budget be used as a tool to support what the strategy has been for the organization? How can we make it an inclusive process and one where the team members understand their roles? We believe that's the key, that it be inclusive, that folks understand their role, and that the process is understood by all from beginning to end. But most importantly, we want leaders to realize that a budget is just a plan and it's the most informed plan as of a point in time. You won't get it right because life never happens the way you think it's going to happen. And that's okay. It's just a plan and it's not set in stone. Um, And it's such an interesting point of view because I do believe that often boards, and we're going to talk about boards in a minute, but oftentimes people do see it as kind of set in stone, don't they? Yep. And there's, there's a feeling that it will never change and it will. Inevitably it will. Well, it has to really. So I see it all the time. I bet you see it even more all the time than I do. An organization works on a calendar fiscal year. The budget's approved, say in October, November, and then in January, the first board meeting, the board asks the staff to present their goals for the year. Some listeners might wish for a process was this clear, but I think there's something wrong with that process. I actually think it's, uh, I think the technical term, ass backwards. What do you think, Hilda? I hear what you're saying, and absolutely. We think the planning starts with goal setting. And actually, when we think of the board and leadership, the goal setting really has to be the first step And it really has to start at the board level and the board, the finance committee, the the team of governance really needs an opportunity to set the goals for the coming year so that by the time management sits to develop the budget, they will already be informed for what those top priorities are for the board. And those priorities will affect some of the choices that the team makes at the leadership level. I encourage organizations during the goal setting process to set goals in three areas. And this is at the board level, of course, informed and in collaboration with management, but well before the budgeting starts. And the goals should be programmatic, which we always see, fundraising, which we often see, but also financial goals. You want to be thinking about what are the financial realities and goals for the organization early on. And I'll come back to that financial goal setting a little bit more um, uh, later later in our conversation. Yeah, I do think that because people look at budgeting as something that is not central, (laughs) which it's hard for me to imagine, but because they don't look at it as central, they don't think of it as being tied to goals. They think of it as, 
how are we going to hit our numbers? How are we going to deliver the most work for the least amount of money? There's often a kind of a scarcity approach to budgeting. I think that's part of what makes it feel like such a, A, daunting, and B, sometimes kind of deflating kind of process in an organization when in fact it should be something really quite different, don't you think? Absolutely. It's uh, it's the chance to make it happen early, early on in that process. So how about we walk through um, a couple of vocabulary words? I have heard, and I'm sure my listeners have heard the words, zero-based budgeting. So maybe you could define that and also sort of Are there other types, and do you have a preference when you work with clients about how to approach them? So a zero-based budget means each year we start from the beginning. What do we want to do based on these goals that have been set? What are our priorities for this coming year, especially linked to our longer-term priorities? And we assume that everything's on the table in terms of options. So zero-based means we go back to the beginning and we reprioritize based on what is in the priorities for the organization. Oftentimes, I see other approaches to budgeting, which might be, what did we spend last year? And let's, let's increment the expenses by 5% and grow the revenues by 5% and we're done. And that type of last year plus some percentage, that just assumes that last year's focus points are the same as this year. That may be true, but usually it isn't. So the zero-based budgeting approach, which is my preference, really says the budget doesn't have a life of its own. It's a mechanism that supports goal setting and prioritizing what the organization wants to focus on. Therefore, as a result, it needs to begin with those priorities and go back to the beginning of what resources will be allocated. That's how the term, I think, was derived. And you'll notice if you Google the term zero-based budgeting, it's a pretty sort of um, revisited term across the sector because so many organizations are really rethinking about how they're delivering services. It's refreshing to go back to the beginning and say, well, what is important to us? rather than building on what happened in the past, assuming that that's absolutely relevant today. Yeah, it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy if you just every year you just up one by some percent and up the other by one percent. It doesn't allow for any strategic look at, gee, maybe this year we'd like to take make a deeper investment in X program. And we've actually learned by doing some program evaluation that Y program is really not having the kind of impact we want it to have. And maybe when you actually tick and tie those things, you don't need 5% more revenue because maybe the program that's not having the greatest impact was more expensive. So the, the notion that you can just increase expenses by one percent, some percent and revenue by another basically sells the whole budgeting process short because it doesn't make it central to planning. Absolutely. Especially in years where you may have strategic initiatives that reflect your strategic goals, where there may be significant investments in infrastructure or in professional development, they really need to be reflective of those initial goals. I have seen it over and over again. The tension between the folks who run the programs and the folks who drive 
the resources, the program team and the development team. And no te- the tension comes out, I think, most clearly during the budgeting process. The program staff are often accused, either implicitly or explicitly, um, will often accuse the development staff of what's called, you know, sort of sandbagging. That I'm going to make, I'm going to make this number X, um, and I'm going to bring it in a little low because I want to be able to hit it or exceed it. Or the development staff argues that they see so-and-so at his desk on Facebook all the time, so why are we putting in for an additional program coordinator? Um, Before we take through a kind of a standard process, don't you have to sort of grapple with that inherent tension? That's a tough question, Joan. You're really asking me to uh, manage human dynamics, but I'll try. I will definitely try. Give it a go. Give it a go. Yes. So I think there's a few values that we think are important to a resilient organization. And those values are things like inclusiveness in the budgeting process, clarity around what is being asked for, clarity around what's been raised in the past and what the assumptions are for the future. And I think we need to be realistic. So we can come in with our wish list of what would it take to run the program in the fullest way, and then reality sets in. And we realize that maybe we can't raise as much as we thought, but it's always a great idea to always know what the original wish list was. And and I shouldn't use wish list, what the original thinking was around what would it take to deliver the program successfully, because should additional funds become available, you want to have that sort of plan B list readily available so that if funds do come in beyond what was originally budgeted, it's not a sort of free-for-all, what do we do with these funds? There's actually a plan for those additional funds in terms of making that program whole. I also think that um, when program and development develop these goals together, back to the inclusiveness, they're not in isolation of each other. And This is a muscle that I think needs to be built throughout the year. We're talking about about the budgeting process in the development stage. But if throughout the year there are meetings where development and program and finance are meeting, and I always joke and say, you know, call it the the most enticing name you can to make people um, interested in coming to it, but it's really a quarterly operations review where we're learning from each other about what's working and what's not working. And by the time the budget development process starts for the next year, there's a muscle there that we've, we have the understanding of what we're doing, what may be possible and what might not. And finance and development and program are speaking more of a common language than each of these silos independently. So it's a year-round muscle. That needs- what, what I like about what you said is far too often I believe that program people feel like their numbers got cut and now this is their reality. And the things that got cut seem to just evaporate into the ethos. And your suggestion that no, program director, these items you have put in the budget are really important. And if we and and it gives the development team the opportunity to say, "Wow, not only do I feel bad we have to cut that, but I want to stretch 
so that we can put that person in the budget or we can add that particular element of the program. And that does actually, I think, cause a much greater sense of integration and inclusion in the budget process. I think that's really smart. So let's, um, to the extent you're able, the components of a smart budget process. And I guess when I say smart, I'm also saying realistic, especially in the sense of the time that should be devoted to it. Because you can uh, do a lot of navel gazing when you do budgeting and look at, you know, uh, yet another draft and another draft and another draft, and then you have serious budget fatigue. So what's, what's, what's the best way for an organization? And, and, you know, clearly we're not talking about here probably not talking about a $300 million organization, but maybe we're talking about a, you know, $5 million or $2 million or $8 million budget. What is this, what's a smart budget process look like for FMA? So the, the smartness of it is that it's, um, it's going to be understood. So there's a process and a timeline and there's literally a kickoff to the budget process. So we, we define the time frame around it with a beginning point. And that kickoff is that goal-setting process that I mentioned at the board level that influences the future planning process. We then have the stage of goal-setting in support of those strategic priorities at the leadership team. And then once those goals have been established, we actually start the budget building process. We actually believe that the first step to a budgeting process is understanding where you're ending this year Many organizations raise money in advance for restricted purposes. So first understanding where are we this year? What funds have we raised in advance? What are our level of reserves? Where are our risks? Doing some reflection of risks and opportunities as part of this planning process and in connection to these goals that the board has set. That's that sort of initial prioritization phase. Once we start building the budget, there should be a timeline for the first draft. And then again, an understanding by all members of what happens during those revision drafts that you, as you mentioned, Joan, where dollars might just evaporate. Uh, A sort of, we're going to go through three drafts. So there's an understanding that there's three levels to this. First draft is going to be by this date, and then this process will happen, and we'll have a revised draft and then a final draft. And one of the things that I've seen executive directors do that's been really well received is the day after the board approves the budget, there's a communication back to the team that says, congrats, we did it. We have a board approved budget, or maybe says, this is what was brought up by the board. Uh, this, these were the changes, whatever the communication is, this team has put in a lot of hours into building this budget. There's a sense of closure when they hear back that the budget has been approved by the board and that we're moving forward with it. So the sense of knowing the timeline, knowing what's happening next, open communication gets us to that place where um, it's understood. And if you think about it, we're really starting the budget five months before the end of the fiscal year. So the budgeting and planning never really ends because we're projecting this year, we're starting next year, we get it approved, and then we're revisiting. It's a year-long planning process, and the budget is just a part of it. It's not a life of its own. It's part of planning all year round. 
Wow, that sounds really, really smart. I am guessing I have a lot of listeners that think, why would I possibly spend that much time thinking about numbers that I know are going to change a lot? <laughs> like, I've got work to do. I got to go raise that money or I got to go run those programs. Like five months? Um, and I just wonder how, how you address that with someone who just comes to you and says, Get, I, I can't spend five months doing this. And so the way that I respond is that um, the plan is really not as important as the planning process. As we plan and prioritize and strategize, we're building that muscle. Remember, it's just practice, but we're making choices and decisions. The the to do it and put it to bed earlier analogy you made and then go on and do what we do, that's the disconnect. And so five months may feel like a long time, but if we understand the timeline and what the goals are at each of those phases, we understand it's a journey because if we want the budget to, to reflect the best information we have, we know it will change, it will take time and it gives each part of the process a, a, a fair amount of time because we have other things we're doing. It's not like we're dropping everything and we're giving the budgeting process a month and then we're done. It happens around other things, but you want different team members to be able to understand the process and see their contribution. So it just, it needs some airtime to be able to be completed. And as we move into monitoring, as soon as the budget is approved, we're already thinking about monitoring. The more that the, pro the program and, and development and finance leaders understand how we got to where we got, the variance analysis becomes that much easier because we all know what's in the numbers. We all know how we got there. We know the trade-offs we made. And so the analysis becomes so much easier. When we see, especially the non-financial team members, build their own budget and understand their assumptions, they're in a much better place to manage their program costs eventually when the budget um, is approved and they start to roll it out. Yeah, I do think that your argument that, you know, over a longer period of time and not necessarily intensely digging into a budget for a single month is a pretty good argument. Although I do think that you, as you get closer to approving the budget, you do know a heck of a lot more about your actuals in that current fiscal year that do end up having a pretty good impact on how you design the budget. So it's a I guess it's a it's a, a needle you have to kind of thread. Mm -hmm. Yes. So and I yeah, will say, Joan, I'm sorry. One last point. No, go ahead. That in order to make the process really work for you that timeline should be well thought out so that board meetings are scheduled that favor that timeline, as opposed to, again, board meeting schedules on one side, the budget's on the other, and we're trying to make things fit. Those meetings are in support of the process. So you want to um, coordinate that as much as possible. Yeah, it's a funny thing, Hilda. I, I often find when I'm working with clients that it's it almost seems to take people by surprise that either they have an upcoming board meeting or, oh, this is the board meeting where we have to approve the budget. And I have a blog post, uh, and it was based on actually a great idea a client had. It's called the board meeting racetrack. 
Mm. And it actually shows you that if you have four board meetings a year or you have six board meetings a year, there are certain milestones that need to happen at certain milestones or decisions that need to be made at those meetings. And you can actually start to plan out the activities of your organization based on those milestones. And again, I just find it, I get myself all gobsmacked thinking about board meetings that catch people by surprise. Yep, I hear you. So um, here's an interesting challenge. When you're budgeting, how do you figure out the full cost of delivering the program, especially when you have, maybe the program is being funded by different funders who have different expectations. Not only do you have the direct costs, but you have shared costs or indirect costs. And um, you can get all tangled up in that, trying to um, please or appease different funders. And I wonder if you have thoughts or a resource on this particular knot. That is a really important um, knot to untangle. We, we see organizations that have a lot of restricted grants. Their first step to their budget is to consolidate the contracts that they have, and they say, here's our budget. And that is not what we would recommend. We realize that if you are funded by heavily restricted grants, that's important to know what is being funded by what funder. But before we can think about who is paying for what, we need to figure out what do we need. And so an organization first has to develop its program-based budget. What are the activities we plan to do this year based on the priorities we've set for ourselves? And how do we intend to use our resources by function, programmatically between the programs, the administrative infrastructure, and the fundraising infrastructure? So this is what does each of these functions cost us? Then we can talk about who is going to pay for which costs. And in these two steps, the development team who is writing grant proposals for the after-school program has a beginning point that says, this is our full program cost for after-school programming. This is our full cost for our youth development et cetera, et cetera. And so you want to first build the full cost of the program and then seek funding for it. And doing this also helps organizations remember what are the core expenses to the program as it has been approved by the board for the year. Because inevitably, when you go out for funding, there may be a foundation or a government entity that wants to fund you, but by the way, there's something they need from you that wasn't in the original budget. So they need a special graduation program or a special evaluation report. That was not in the original budget. If you have a way of going back to the originally approved budget for that program, you can then see when you're agreeing to take on new mandates, hopefully funded ones, but new and over and above the costs were in the original budget. There are some tools we've developed and I'll mention them at the end of our conversation that will help. And it is a very, very helpful tool to shift folks from contract funding to what does it take to deliver my program? That's the key question. 
Well, and do stick around with us because Hilda will point us to some of those resources that represent and reflect decades of work with hundreds and hundreds of nonprofits. Um, <clears throat> let's talk about the board. Let's talk about the relationship between the budgeting process and the finance committee of the board with a focus on your board treasurer. I've seen I've seen board treasurers be sort of feel like they're supervisors of the staff in this regard. I've seen board treasurers who feel like they don't know the numbers nearly as well as the staff does and that they tend to take a much more hands-off approach. Um, you know, w- w- what what should it look like, Hilda? So the treasurer is really the representative uh, for the bigger board. Some organizations have finance committees. And so they are a champion for the board, but they are the board voice. And it is their role to bring this back to the board. The board should not be delegating their role in the treasurer and then looking in another direction. The board is the one that's setting those goals that I mentioned. So the treasurer really should think of himself or herself as the champion from the governance perspective that set that, that set of eyes that maybe asks the harder questions before the budget is, is brought before the bigger board that helps staff really push the envelope and think about things. They are not the supervisor. And I've also seen in smaller organizations, the treasurer function almost like a volunteer CFO where they're building the budget. And that sort of blurs the lines between governance and and management. And so we want that distance as much as possible, always in a supportive way. But the the leadership following the, the goal setting that the board with the treasurer being the champion behind the numbers has said. So just like you talked about the board racetrack, I often encourage a similar process for the finance committee meetings so that we're building towards it, but it is management that's making the assumptions. They should know the numbers much more intimately than the board, but the board has to know enough around the critical questions. And that goes back to the financial goal setting Should the organization be um, setting aside funds for reserves? Is there a revenue diversification? Those strategic questions are where the treasurer and the board should be weighing in. And then management comes back with a plan as to how to make it happen. But what we want to make happen really has to be discussed at the board level. And I'll say one more thing. Um, There are those executive directors and leaders who feel like they have to have it all figured out by the time it goes to the finance committee or the board. They have to have made all the tough choices and here is a perfectly presented budget. I I encourage folks not to do that. Bring maybe a few scenarios, Mm. the best case, the worst case, the mid case, because just as you mentioned earlier that the development team might be more motivated to to push the fundraising a little bit if it means adding that extra staff position. They've now they're in, they're invested in in this activity at the board level. I've seen some pretty amazing results when the board comes to understand if we could raise an extra twenty thousand. This is what it would mean in terms of additional outcomes for the organization. They 
all of a sudden become more engaged in trying to figure out how do we raise that extra 20,000? Whereas if the executive director had all the answers and had made all the choices, the board wouldn't really be engaged in that. And so I know it may feel a bit unsettling to think that you'll go to the board with some unanswered questions, but I actually think it's a pretty good idea to have alternatives so that the board understands what the trade-offs are rather than feeling like you have to have it all figured out before you go to that conversation. I love that. And what I love about that is that far too often these budget processes, um, the, you know, the treasurer and maybe if you have a finance director present these budgets and there are no questions get asked. They assume the finance committee has done all the work. They don't ask any of those higher level strategic questions. And, the, and to me, it becomes a big fat missed opportunity. But with scenarios, you end up having a wholly different kind of conversation and the board members end up with skin in the game and start to own that budget in a way they wouldn't otherwise. Absolutely. I encourage that. Um, yeah, see the difference for those listeners. <laughs> Just try, um, try it and see, see what the difference. Yeah, is. try. Yeah, give it a try. Try to let go of that Type A personality of yours that yeah. um, f- that makes you go to every board meeting all buttoned up. Um, <laughs> uh, question: Cash flow is something organizations struggle with all the time, especially smaller ones. Should a budget be accompanied by a cash flow? Per- projection because you can have these really nice budgets and then all of a sudden the executive director will come to a board meeting, pull a fire alarm and say, we're, uh, we're sweating payroll. So um, is it a good idea to include a cash flow projection? Absolutely. The balance, the perfectly balanced budget doesn't really say much or doesn't say enough if we don't recognize that in the first three months, the contract with the city hasn't been registered and the event doesn't happen till the fifth month. So the reality of the cash flow is what I call my executive director's navigation tool. There needs to be a tool that converts the full accrual-based budget, all the funds we expect to, to bring in and to spend, into a timeline of when are the funds coming in and when will the expenses be incurred. That tool should be presented at the same time as the budget. It's part of approving the budget so that the board understands what are those periods when we will be short. And cyclically, our leaders tend to know which times of the year they tend to be uh, lightest. If there's a major investment this year, that might change. But for the most part, if you ask an executive director, which are your tough months, they'll know. But presenting that, in a way that the board can see these are the months. And it'll also then open the conversation to this question of a working capital credit line. I've worked with board members who are opposed to a working capital credit line because maybe they've been involved in a previous board where it wasn't managed well. And I call them scars of war when it comes to credit lines that haven't been managed. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a really critical tool. And so knowing when would we need the credit line, should we be applying for one, the best time to apply for a credit line is when you don't need it, when your financials (laughs) are really strong, and then you hold on to it until that moment that you need it. So none of that could be discussed or explored 
if we only looked at a one column budget of revenues and expenses, I couldn't, uh, couldn't urge for anything more critical than understanding cash flow. Uh, I'm guessing that many listeners just wrote that down saying, oh my goodness, we don't usually do that at all. Um, We are talking with Hilda Polanco. She's the founder and CEO of FMA, Fiscal Management Associates. Her firm is known nationwide as the go-to organization for financial consulting, training, and for the exploration of financial outsourcing. They have offices in New York, Chicago, Oakland, and LA. And one of my favorite things about this organization is its mission statement, which says that FMA exists to build a community of individuals with the confidence and skills to lead organizations that change the world, clearly with numbers being central and integral to that. Um, You talked about a line of credit. Um, Can you talk about the difference between getting a line of credit and building a cash reserve? And if you have any um, suggestions on how to build a cash reserve, I'm going to guess that my listeners are going to get, just turn the volume up on this podcast just a little louder. So uh, a, a credit line comes from a third party, usually a bank or a CDFI, which is a community development institution that is very friendly to nonprofits. But that's borrowing money from the outside, usually comes with an interest rate attached to it. A reserve is a savings account. It is something that we as individuals do for emergencies, for long-term planning. We have our 401k. We are putting money aside for the future. A reserve represents that for an organization. And how does one build a reserve? Well, a reserve, the only way to build a reserve is to have periods in your history as an organization where you brought in more money than you spent. That seems pretty simple. Too often I see definition of success to be a perfectly balanced budget. Revenues equal expenses. Well, if that's our plan, we plan to spend every dollar we raise. There is no strategy there towards building a reserve. A reserve is built because we strategically prioritize it. It's in those initial goals. And we make choices where we project what it's going to cost to deliver our programming and how much money we're going to raise. And in there, there's either this assumption that we'll have a surplus, small as it might be, you need to start somewhere, or some organizations that are really focused on building a reserve will actually add a line to their operating budget that says current year addition to reserve, $10,000. Somewhere in that goal setting process I spoke about earlier, there was a goal that was set We will want to have an operating reserve of X, that could be in dollars, or X in number of months of operations. And reserves don't get built overnight. They don't get built in one year. So it's a process through time that we are working towards. And I do a lot of work with funders. I was delivering a training just this morning. And funders actually are impressed to see an organization trying to build a reserve so that they're not vulnerable and risky, so that they can take chances or or even recover from lost funding they didn't see. There's this fear, if I have reserves, funders won't fund me. That is not true. Funders want to fund sustainable organizations. So your strategy to have a reserve, to show it as part of your budgeting process, to talk to your funders about it, might actually even yield the conversation that we've seen happen 
where a long-term funder really believes in an organization. The organization talks about its policy to build reserves of a certain kind for a certain purpose. That funder might even contemplate a grant to strengthen that reserve. All of these examples mean that first you as a leader have to prioritize it and set it as a goal. And then it can be funded in different ways, but it needs to begin with the strategic decision that this is important to you. When I was an executive director and I arrived to a, an organization that was sort of in a financial ditch, we ultimately created a budget line for the reserve. And every month it was like, you know, what, what is that thing called? The Christmas Club or something. And, <laughs> and we put money into the reserve religiously, no pun intended, into our Christmas club account. And um, and and if we ended up having on top of that a particularly, um, you know, if our revenue exceeded our expenses, we could grow the reserve further. And um, over the course of seven years, we ended up with a $2 million reserve. And that didn't come as a result of bequests or anything, any big numbers. It was uh, very much a slow and steady wins the race. And I do believe that funders want to see organizations that are making their very best effort to be fiscally sound. Um, We are almost out of time, so I want to ask one last question. So you build and approve a budget. What's the most effective way to monitor the budget? And do you believe in revising sort of either mid-year or quarterly based on new information? That is one of the most important parts of the monitoring process, the willingness to revisit the numbers throughout the year. We, we know that people spend a lot of time doing budget to actual variance analysis, and that's important. But the more important part is the, and now what? If the budget and the actual is different and we've learned new information, how does that inform the rest of the year? And that's where the term forecasting and projections. They can be used interchangeably. That's what that refers to. So we have a period of time, we have actuals. Based on what we've now learned, what do we think the rest of the year will look like? And as leaders, we're constantly trying to refine that because a deficit, the worst type of deficit is the one you didn't see coming. You may have good news. You have new revenue. How will we spend that? And getting the programmatic and development team around these projections, not just the finance team, also is a critical part of getting ready for next year's budgeting, but also understanding what's happening and what are the levers that we need to push. So projection, forecasting, and my two favorite words, especially in today's world, how do we course correct and how do we recalibrate that process? So if your budget feels so painful that you could never imagine recasting it, that means you probably want to work on the budget process a little bit. Right. The reason I wanted to do this podcast is I wanted people to understand what a process ought to look like and what it can do for you and sort of the drama it can um, eliminate. I can't even talk about the number of organizations that... <laughs> where there are fire alarms pulled at every board meeting and every executive committee meeting. Uh-oh is the, you know, uh-oh is, by the way, is not a strategy. <laughs> uh-oh is so not a strategy. We're, oh no, 
It's a surprise. We're not going to hit payroll. These things should not be surprises. If you're running your organization the right way and kind of following some of the steps that Hilda's talking about, there should be no surprises. I mean, and even if there are, that you have some way of raising those with your board and being able to manage them as opposed to feeling like you're a car careening down a mountain road with kind of shaky brakes. Um, and so I, I am laughing thinking, thinking about each of you who are listening only because I always imagine you being on an elliptical machine or driving to work. And I'm imagining that all of you are sitting there going, oh my God, Joan, you didn't tell me I was going to have to take so many notes. I would have pulled over to the side of the road. Um, but Hilda has a lot of great information. She also has a lot of great resources. I promised you someone who knew her stuff. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, we can say that 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 she delivered big time. But but there are, in addition to what we talked about today, an array of resources that FMA has, and I wanted to give Hilda just a minute to point folks to them. There's a website we built called strongnonprofits.org, and that website was funded by a grant from the Wallace Foundation, nationally uh, funding organization, and in there, I encourage you to visit it. We will give you a, a a map site, but I encourage you to look for things like the five-step guide to a successful budget, the fiscal calendar that helps you plan your budget and other financial deadlines throughout the year, the webinar that's on the board's financial leadership, both a video and a PowerPoint, one of my favorites, the cash flow projections template for executive directors to navigate their cash flow a policy template for an organization that wants to create an operating reserve for the organization, a year-end forecast template if you haven't done forecasting yet, and my favorite of all tools, a program-based budget builder that will help you determine the full cost of programming and prepare you for how to apply for a grant that will fully cover your costs and have an appropriate amount of indirect cost built in. So those are some of my favorites. I encourage you to visit the site and also our special list that we'll put together for Joan's listeners. Yep. So the podcast will appear on my blog, as it always does. And underneath there will be the links to the FMA resources and they can only help. The other thing I was thinking about as we close out, and I just wanted to say, Hilda, thank you so much for sharing so much of your wisdom and very, very practical advice to nonprofit leaders who are tuning in. So thank you. Thank you for having me, Joe. Um, so here's what I'm thinking. You just listened to this. I think there are more people in your organization need to need to hear this. What if you sent it as a pre-listen before your next the finance committee meeting, before the first finance committee meeting where you're starting to lay out the budget process? Um, what if you used some of uh, Hilda's and FMA's resources and shared those, and you actually had a conversation before you dove headfirst into the budgeting process and shared some of this information with everyone so they could really start to reframe what budgeting looks like and what it really means for an organization. Because at the end of the day, I think that's Hilda's big message here, is that a budget process is an integral part of planning. It's an integral part of strategy. And um, 
for those of you who are potentially not, where you, you're pretty sure that if somebody asked you what a balance sheet is, you might fumble the football. But get on this. Share this with people and get a conversation going because I believe it will serve your organization very, very well indeed. So that's it for us. Um, as always, we are so appreciative of everything that you do to repair the world in ways large and small. Please don't hesitate to join me at my blog, joangary.com, where you can subscribe to our weekly practical advice. Uh, and also, um, we have as you know, a online membership site for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits called the Nonprofit Leadership Lab. Encourage you to take a look at that. You can learn lots about that at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. Until next time, thanks as always for everything you do. Take care. Joan Gary's obsession with supporting your work takes many forms. Subscribe to her blog at joangary.com reaching over 100,000 visitors monthly from over 170 countries. Explore the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. Join 15,000 kindred spirits on Facebook at Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary.